Hello, and welcome to episode 85 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. As usual, we have a few notes for you here at the beginning of the show. I want to mention that there will be a closure bridge in Auckland, New Zealand, September 18th and 19th, and you can find out more about that on the closurebridge.org website. Closure Bridge, always an excellent event, so if you happen to be in that part of the world, um, you should surely check it out. Um, speaking of interesting closure events in far distant from me, at least parts of the world, there is a new meetup starting in Hong Kong, a new closure meetup, um, Deaf Hong Kong meetup. Um, you can find information about that um, at meetup.com slash closure dash HK. So that's brand new. Looks like they just started in June of 2015 here. So um, check it out if you're near there. Um, closure PDX, another meetup. Uh, that's in Portland, Oregon. Uh, their next meeting, as of this recording, is September 3rd, 2015 at 6 p.m. Pacific. You can find them at meetup.com slash closure dash PDX. Um, the other thing I want to mention today is that the closure call for proposals, closure conj call for proposals, has been extended out to August 21st, 2015. Um, August is a pretty big vacation month, at least around here, so I think uh, the idea is to give people just a few more days to uh, get back from vacation and write those proposals. And I think you should write one. Um, if you were at Closure Con, well, even if you weren't at Closure Conj last year, one of the really cool things about the conference was the sheer number of uh, people who were there for the first time, people who were kind of coming to Closure. So, you know, if you're sitting there thinking, ah, you know, Closure Conj is you know, maybe a little intimidating to speak at, or maybe they don't want to hear what I have to say. I'm here to assure you that um, the beginner voice is definitely uh, something we want to hear from. Um, really great event, you know, super fun to speak at. And if you uh, submit a talk and it's accepted, um, then that means you get free admission <laughs> and, uh, you know, allowances for travel, which if you're in the U.S. means, you know, your hotel and your flights are covered and there's a, a healthy allowance for um, international travel as well. So um, you should definitely consider submitting a talk. Uh, we would absolutely love to hear from people from all parts of the closure world, whether you're using it commercially or using it for a hobby project or a beginner or whatever. Just uh, come by the closure-conj.org website and send us your proposal. But hurry, you only have, well, it'll be less than a week by the time I get this on the air. So uh, do that because we would love to see you up on stage there. So um, I think that covers everything for now. So that means that we get to go on to uh, the episode. This would be episode 85 of the Cognicast. What do you say? Okay, sounds good. Excellent. So, welcome everybody. Today is Thursday, June 25th, in the year 2015, and this is the Cognicast. And today, as our guest, we are very, very pleased to welcome a software developer at Comcast, one of the organizers of Closure Bridge, and doer of many other interesting things, Catherine Fellows. Welcome to the show. Howdy. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're thrilled. Thrilled to have you on. Uh, and we're going to ask you the question that we always ask our guests at the beginning which is to share some kind of experience or story or whatever, something 
something about some kind of art that you've encountered in your life that you'd like to share with our listeners with. So what would you, what would you like to lay on us? Yeah. So I think when you first asked me this question, you were like, describe a cultural thing. So one of the things that I've been finding really interesting and helpful and useful recently is, so there's a developer named Kelsey Ennis who previously worked as a Scala developer. Now she works for nonprofits building tools to help prevent sexual assault on college campuses. And she's been giving this series of talks that's centered around the topic of your job is political, tech, money, and politics. And she gave this first as a talk at Oakland JS Conf last year. That was, it's, she ended up writing a blog post afterwards that goes into like tracking money in the tech industry, both through companies themselves and through VCs, and talking about how that ends up touching things that aren't directly related to the technology that we're building, like national spending and education spending, especially as it goes into charter schools and how that affects students themselves, because ultimately charter schools are really dependent on educational technology, uh, school board races, things like gun safety and policing, which is super relevant to me personally because I live in Oakland. So I guess we can like link to the blog post or something mm-hmm. in the show notes. Yes, and absolutely. Yeah, and this week she's also giving that talk at Open Source Bridge. This week being like the week of, I guess, June 25th, 2015. So I know they're recording that talk, and she's also giving it at AlterConf in Portland this year, too. So one of those videos should be up at some point, and people should look for them. <laughs> Interesting. So that's I think that might be the first time that somebody has mentioned something um, as an experience, an artistic experience or artistic work, where it's it's also been something technical. But I think that's perfectly valid. I mean... You know, my take on art uh, <laughs> is that it's it's something that you have an uh, an emotional reaction to, right? And that it's successful to the extent that it's, you know, what the artist intended, at least from one perspective. Is that so? This is that why you picked this? I'm because, like I say, I don't think anybody's yeah. picked a technical talk before. Yeah. So I previously to going into software engineering, I was intending to go into public education. So whenever I saw this talk in particular, the stuff about uh, charter schools and school races in particular really resonated with me, uh, especially because I went to a charter school back in Texas when I was in high school. And I saw how technology affected not just like the school industry in general, but like me on a personal level and how that ended up carrying me through college and then into industry. So it was a really important talk to me personally that really resonated. So I think people should go check it out. Hmm, Interesting. So I'm interested now because uh, you brought this up. You mentioned, and I haven't talked to you about your your background before. You said you were thinking about going into education, and you went into software instead. What? what, what now <laughs> my interest has peaked. What did that journey look like? Uh, yeah. So I went to an early college high school and ended up getting my two year degree in teaching, and then ended up transferring to a four year university and studying English education. And when I was interning in the classroom, it turned out that like my English degree was like in reasonably high demand, but actually what they really needed in Texas were math teachers. So I ended up taking more math classes and tending to get certified as a math teacher. And eventually math sort of led to discrete math. And then that ended up leading to coding. So I was in Texas and moved out to San Francisco for a summer to attend uh, one of the coding boot camps that they have out here called Hackbrite. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went there and it's like a 10 week program that teaches full stack web development and Actually, like the first half, they teach you uh, like a concentrated curriculum that's based on like Python and JavaScript. And then the second half, everyone works on a personal project. And that's how I got started doing functional programming was during the personal project half. So uh, what, what was it that led you to functional programming? I mean, a, 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 a prep course in 
Python and JavaScript isn't necessarily like the, yeah. the golden path to that. So one of my mentors coincidentally worked at Twitter and they're a big scholar shop. So she was like, oh, you have a math degree. You seem like personality wise to enjoy a lot of the same things that my coworkers who do Scala seem to enjoy. So I'll introduce you to them. And then that's how I got started interested in doing functional programming. And also at the same time, there were a couple of students in my class who were interested in writing compilers. So one of the instructors was just sort of showing the basics of how to write a parser for just like a Lisp. And I remember seeing what Lisp looked like and being like, that's really readable, which <laughs> I don't think is what most people think. <laughs> so they were like, oh, this is also a form of functional programming. And so I was like, okay, maybe I might enjoy it. And that's how I sort of ended up doing that. Now, were you uh, a beginner to programming at that point? I mean, was that your very first introduction or you'd done a little bit or? Yeah, so I hadn't really done any programming prior to Hackbright. I was a math major, so I'd taken discrete math and I TA'd for discrete math, but I hadn't really programmed at all. So whenever I started learning how to code, a lot of the stuff I could pick up relatively quickly just because I'd spent so much time learning about discrete math that sort of the underlying implementation seemed more intuitive to me, at least when we were talking about computer science concepts. And I think sort of how I ended up doing more, so now I work mostly doing distributed system stuff. So backend development tended to resonate, I think, more with me in terms of my past experience, just because I was a math major. So a lot of, like if you go to math meet, or rather if you go to sort of distributed systems focused meetups in the Bay Area, uh, especially when it comes time to talk about like distributed data processing and stuff, it wasn't actually that intimidating to me <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I knew a lot of what they were talking about already, especially when it came down to like abstract algebra and stuff. Like I just came out of an abstract algebra course. So it was like, Oh, this is stuff I already know. And they're just applying it in industry. So, yeah. Yeah. So I was interested by your comment where you said uh, you saw a list syntax and you're like, Oh, that's very readable. And um, you know, I find it to be as well, especially closure, but, but that might kind of speak to the point I wanted to ask you about, which is, do you think that was just because you hadn't had prior experience? We get this a lot, right? I mean, I'm sure you've yeah. seen this in your work where, oh, it's a list. That's just, uh, what's the old saying? Uh, toenail clippings and oatmeal, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and and yet you, you walked up to it and with maybe less of a bias based on experience than other people might have, you said, I find that to be, to be readable. Do you think it's... I mean, I'm asking you to speculate on other people, but I'm curious if you think that was because you hadn't seen as much code as someone who, like me, for instance, who came at it from years and years and years of, um, you know, like C-sharp and that type of language. Yeah, I think it is, it's definitely less confusing, I think, if you don't have a prior background in sort of like C syntax-based languages, mm -hmm. because you're not used to like seeing the layout of things differently. Uh, I think I found it just more approachable just because the syntax was like relatively dependable. Like it was relatively consistent regardless of what you were doing. Mm. Like the function was always in the same place for the most part. And there wasn't that much to confuse in the way of like, if you're missing like semicolons and things mm. like it was easier to understand from that perspective. And I could focus more on like what was actually being done versus like how to lay it out in terms of formatting <laughs> when I was first getting started, which after a certain point, I think like, how do I lay this out in terms of formatting is like no longer really an issue. But if you're not used to coding, then that's something that you spend a lot of time focusing on. Well, so this is a perfect segue to some of your other work, specifically talking about ClojureBridge. And we've talked about ClojureBridge on the program before, but it's been a while. And I think the 
curriculum is developed and certainly you're going to have another perspective. So I wonder if you could speak a bit about your role and your perspective on the program. Yeah. So I can say how I got started doing closure bridge stuff was, so I've been working as a Scala developer since I started coding basically. And a few months after I left Hackbrite, uh, Bridget Hilliard mentioned on the Lambda ladies mailing list. So Lambda ladies is like a Google group for women who are interested in functional programming. And Bridget mentioned that she was interested in starting a program that was like Rails Bridge, except for closure. And because I went to Hackwrite, which uh, Hackwrite in particular is a coding bootcamp that only admits women. So I was more familiar with like Rails Bridge. I knew people who had mentored and taught Rails Bridge courses in San Francisco. So when she said it's like Rails Bridge for closure, that was something that really resonated with me, especially because uh, even though I wasn't like, doing closure development at all at the time, uh, I was doing Scala development and there are about the same, or there were about the same amount of women in Scala as there were in closure back then. So whenever she said, I'm interested in doing this for closure, I was like, I don't really do closure right now, but I like the idea of having more women in functional programming. So if you need any help, let me know. And that's how I got started out with it. And then at first I was mostly just like giving feedback on curriculum stuff. And then uh, Sean Corfield here in San Francisco decided that he was going to organize one here in the Bay Area. So I ended up TAing for that. And then there was a second one in San Francisco that I helped teach as well. So that's how I got started with it anyway. I think curriculum-wise, when we first started, it was sort of focused on building a web app. But it was also focused on people who were new to programming. And those two things tend to be a little bit at odds if you're just doing a weekend workshop. So now it tends to be more focused on like learning the fundamentals of the language and we leave out the stuff about web applications as much as we can because it's less focused on the language itself and more focused on one application of the language, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of like how it's evolved over the past couple of years, if that makes sense at all. Mm -hmm. So what's the, it, that's interesting because I mean, I think the reason to choose a web application is to kind of motivate the learning. I mean, obviously there are different ways one can motivate learning, but is it the case now that the Closure Bridge curriculum is purely, here's programming for programming's sake, that's ridiculously reductive, but it, what's the, what is the, is there a story that threads people through the experience? So one of the takeaways that people get when they're building a web application is that they have like a thing that they have built and they feel like they've invested time in it and they've like have an artifact that they can take and show to other people. And right now we're looking at like other artifacts that you can build using like Quill because like it's still something visual that you can show people, but also doesn't require a knowledge of like how the internet works per se. So it's, it's still focused on a lot of the same objectives. I, I think once you've built like Quill apps to a certain amount, like then once you build a web application, it becomes less about learning the language itself and more about understanding how web applications are structured which could be sort of like an intermediate level thing that we do. And I think that's what we're moving more towards is sort of like the beginner level stuff for people who have less experience programming in general and maybe like haven't built a web application in another language can do stuff that's still visual and still results in like artifacts that they can be proud of and show to people, but isn't necessarily requiring a bunch of underlying knowledge of how the internet works. Mm -hmm. And then as we're building out right now, the sort of like one of the things that we're working on is building out the intermediate level curriculum which I think will probably end up focusing or at least like starting bridging the gap towards building web applications for people. 
That's true. I haven't been following Closure Bridge the way I ought to. Is it the, have there been any, so as far as I was aware, there was only the introductory material. Has anybody run any of the workshops at other than the intro or are there ver, any, any variety in the curriculum right now or is it something you're building towards? Uh, it's something we're building towards right now. I think that's great. I wanted to ask you a bit about, what would you say? I'm sorry, I completely spaced on the name of the, uh, the, the, the program you participated in when you were getting started. Oh, Hackbright. Hackbright, thank you. I wanted to ask you about this because it's something that Closure Bridge takes a slightly different but related approach on, and that's the focus on women. Um, you said that Hackbright was a women-only program. Uh, at least the last time I talked to anybody about it, Closure Bridge was not exactly women-only. It was uh, targeted at women. Men were permitted to come if they were a, a plus one. Is that still the, the policy? Yes. So usually that's the policy. That's uh, So... In general, Closure Bridge events are designed to be for people who are members of underrepresented groups in the right. tech industry. Right. And so some of the Closure Bridge groups focus specifically on women and men are generally like dissuaded from attending at all. Others, like the rule is men can attend if they're a plus one as a woman attendee. Mm-hmm. So you've you've been through a program as a student that had a women-only policy, and you've been involved as a organizer for uh, another group that has a policy that is based around representation in the community. I, I'm wondering what, you, what your experience of that has been. Is it, a, in your opinion, a positive thing? Is it? Is it? I know there's a spectrum of ways to approach it. Do you have any thoughts on the trade-offs? What was that? What, what do you think about that? So I think one of the main trade-offs that some people find if you're teaching in a women-only environment is that it's not reflective of industry and people feel like that's not going to prepare people for industry. For me, I don't feel like that was the case at all. Like when I came out of Hackbright, I feel like I was more confident than I would have been in another program, especially because I ended up doing functional programming, which relative to, for instance, like JavaScript development, if you look at like conferences centered on JavaScript, they tend to have more of a minority representation than functional programming conferences, like in general. So whenever I started going to functional programming events and things of that nature, I, you know, I might've been the only woman out of a room of literally like a hundred people. But at the same time, when I left, I knew a bunch of women developers. So it wasn't like I was alone all of the time, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I still, like, that's still very important to me. And I think it's also an important aspect of Closure Bridge is that if people go to events that are related but aren't women-focused, like, even when they leave, they'll know women outside of that event. And sometimes women will also be there after having attended Closure Bridge. So now sometimes, like, multiple women show up at Closure Meetups when they didn't before. And that's really cool. Do you think there is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm not, I have no agenda here. Um, but uh, do you think there is call for as Closure Bridge progresses to, to change the focus at all? I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just thinking, like I said, it seems like there's a bit of a spectrum, right? Like you, you went through a program that one approach, Closure Bridge is a slightly different one. You said there's some trade-offs, like do you think that there's a maybe a trajectory or is it just this is a good thing to have and it should continue that way if, if it makes any sense? So for like speaking personally, I feel like Closure Bridge itself should probably center specifically on underrepresented groups in technology. In particular, like I, I think the focus on women is like a very small focus and I'd like to expand that. But I think that it's really important to provide spaces where underrepresented people in technology can meet and learn and talk about these topics without having the sort of overhead that comes with having a group that's open 
to other groups as well, mm-hmm. if that makes sense at all. Yeah, it sure does. People are a lot more comfortable, I think, sometimes in environments where it's like if you're a woman and you're in a woman-only environment, you tend to be a lot more open about things than if you weren't in that situation. So, Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I, I, I heard something recently, and uh, this is probably no surprise to you, but it, it really struck me. It, it was, I think it was on the podcast, You Are Not So Smart, which is great if people haven't uh, listened to it. It's a, a podcast about psychology, cognitive, cognitive science, and, uh, and I think it was here that I, I but the, the, it went something like this, that argument is an important part of the developmental history of humans, because we are all individually really, really good at forming an opinion and then defending it to the death, <laughs> right? Like we've all seen this, right? People people get an idea in their head and they're like, and they immediately have a bias towards rejecting contrary evidence, right? The confirmation bias, right? Mm-hmm. And so in groups, what happens is people take different ideas and then they're highly motivated to defend, just by biology, to defend their own view. But since people tend to have different views, what that means is that if your idea is any good, your arguments have to be better than just, well, this is how I feel. So there's sort of this, um, in a sense, like societal pressure towards a meritocracy of ideas, but it's actually predicated on a, a diversity of opinion, right? Now, what you're, what you're saying is that there's a complement to that, which is, which is having these environments where people can get started then is an enabler for letting, for having an environment that's that's more uh, diverse, so we can get the diversity of thoughts, so we can get the sort of um, genetic effect of ideas, if you will. And I just thought that was super interesting. I mean, I kind of always had the sense that it's like, oh yeah, we should have different ideas, but to hear that there actually might be like an evolutionary benefit to to like having a diversity of ideas and having having the conflict of those ideas and human biology participate in the process of uh, promoting the best ideas and bringing society forward. I thought that was just absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And I, and I, I think it's, it just, every time I learn about stuff like, I'm like, yeah, this, we need to have these types of programs to enable that environment. Because I think, you know, as a programmer, right, like we're all, uh, there's a sort of cultural impetus towards uh, meritocracy of ideas, right? Oh, you should be able to defend your ideas. And, and so that, that really appeals to me uh, kind of on the, to be congruent with that in the sense of, well, yeah, you need to have programs like Closure Bridge so that we can get all these people into the environment and have that effect, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think definitely one of the one of the arguments that I hear people give against sort of having groups that are focused specifically on underrepresented groups in technology is that aside from sort of like not being reflective of industry in terms of like diversity statistics, that people feel more comfortable in those spaces and then don't end up venturing out and sharing their ideas in other ones. So especially like sometimes people will talk about conferences that only have women speakers, for example, that maybe that isn't supportive or something along those lines, because then women are only speaking at those conferences and fewer people will hear them. But actually I feel like most of the time when people go and speak at conferences that are focused on like promoting speakers and attendees from their backgrounds, that they then feel more confident about going into other spaces and the ideas get shared more freely and openly than if those spaces didn't exist in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I feel like things like Closure Bridge are really important to me and they're really important to other people also. I know definitely there have been at least a couple of people who went to Closure Bridge events and then at least went out afterwards and got internships doing functional programming. 
which I don't think they would have gone quite so vigorously for functional programming internships specifically if they hadn't been to a closure bridge or something along those lines. Yeah, that's very cool. I wanted to ask you about um, something else that uh, I think speaks to, it's vaguely related in, in the sense of, you know, kind of in, insider outsider type of thing, which I think is a l fuzzy way of describing a little bit what we're talking about. And that's the fact that you're, um, and this is something that's been on my mind a lot recently because um, I am also a remote employee and I've been working on a, on a project where being remote has been a really a challenge. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's doable, but I mean, at this particular gig, there are extra um, cultural barriers to getting work done because I'm not in people's faces. Yes. Um, and, and so I'd love to hear your experience about it, especially because I think you said that um, at Comcast where you're remote, there really at least haven't been too many uh, remote people. Yeah, that's true. So before I took this job for context, I spent about a year doing freelance stuff in the Bay Area. And about six months of that was at a company that had a sort of distributed team. So they had a headquarters in San Francisco and then they had a couple of engineering team members who were, I think, in like Omaha and then Hawaii and then possibly one somewhere in Asia. Uh, and then after I left that job, I started at Comcast where I was, we have one product owner who's remote, but doesn't, he's, he's an engineer, but doesn't contribute to the code base that we work on full time, if that makes sense. So when I was hired, I was sort of like the only full time engineer, like working on contributing code to this one project sort of in the organization. I hadn't really met another remote person when I was hired other than the product owner whenever I was hired to be remote. So it was very much like a slightly odd situation. And I know, so we have an office also in Sunnyvale that I live in Oakland for context. So it's like a few hours away by public transit though. So I don't really go there very frequently and everyone I work with is on the East Coast. So uh, when I took this job, it was sort of, uh, it was sort of interesting because I think a lot of the time when uh, people start jobs where they're like going to work remotely, they either start a job and then work in the office for a certain amount of time. Like I know I've heard some talks where they're like, I've been working in the office for a year and then I'm going to go remote after that. Or they're sort of hired to work remotely on a team that's already distributed. And those are two sort of like slightly different contexts. Uh, I don't know if like you've worked in a situation like those. Uh, yeah, I mean, or, I think I've yeah. done pretty much every combination at this point. I've been the only one remote. Yeah. I've been, you know, <laughs> distributed. I've been all of them. So yeah, I know I'm familiar. Yeah, so it's 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 a very different sort of situation when you're working remotely on a distributed team versus being a remote person with a team that isn't like as a whole distributed. Mm -hmm. Mostly, uh, I think a lot of the time, sort of like I have to troubleshoot things while also dealing with like VPN issues or something, right. <laughs> which is something that I like. I'm sure like you can probably relate to this. Like you're trying to work on a problem and then suddenly the VPN doesn't work, and it's one of those things where like. Where, like you just have to sort of figure out how to do it on your own and then figure out other people within the company who could maybe help you troubleshoot this but it's not really like related to your core job at all mm -hmm. so there's a lot of stuff like that that comes up it's also been sort of interesting because uh, most of the people I know who work remotely are either senior engineers or they're they're sort of people who are maybe like like slightly further along in a career, meaning they had like had a career previously and then they pivoted into doing coding and then now they took this job. So they've been in the workforce in general for a while. Mm -hmm. um, what was sort of interesting about this job is that this is also my first full-time job. So prior to this, I did mostly uh, like freelancing stuff and part-time jobs, like combinations of those. 
this was the first time where I was like FTE, like a full-time employee. So it was very much the case that when I took this job, it wasn't just about like, how do I get my work done in a dependable way so that people like other team members sort of like can interface with me. It was also about like, how do I structure my own life around that? Because, you know, like sometimes like you have a partner or something if you're working remotely. So you see them every day. Uh, If you're like married with kids, a lot of times like working remotely makes it really flexible for you to see your children at certain times of the year, especially like in the summertime. I feel like that would be a really huge boon if you can work remotely. So I'm sort of like a single person. (laughs) (laughs) So it was sort of like, how do I structure my life around uh, having a remote job and making sure that I still like interface with people uh, like in person? How do I make sure that I sort of set up co-working arrangements so that I can sort of like see what other people are doing. And especially because I live in the Bay area, it would be sort of strange if I lived in the Bay area and then sort of ignored the fact that there are all these engineers here. Mm, Sure. (laughs) So a big part of like what I've been doing in my personal time also has been like trying to find co-working arrangements so that I can sort of still see what people are like working on in the Bay area and what the trends are and still be able to pick up on those, even though I don't necessarily work with a company that's based here. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the other things that you've done that have uh, been helpful or maybe the things that you've tried that haven't worked out so well around being remote? When I started this job, I started working at like eight in the morning (laughs) because I was like, oh, everyone else is on the East Coast. So I should try to like wake up early to maximize the amount of overlap I have. And then I realized that co-working spaces in the Bay Area didn't open until nine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So... And I realized if I was working at eight o'clock in the morning every day that I wouldn't like see people. I would just be working from home. And because I don't like have a partner or kids or anything, like that would just be me alone. And that's not good, like long term. So I was like, I'll start working at nine. And then I realized that if it's nine o'clock on the West Coast, then it's twelve o'clock on the East Coast and everyone's at lunch. So I would log on and it would be really hard for me to get caught up on what had been accomplished in the morning while I was asleep. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then I was like, well, maybe push it back a little further. And now it's the case that I start work at usually like 10, 1030 in the morning, because by then people are getting back from lunch. And then we do stand up at 1030 Pacific. So it's like 130 their time on the East Coast. So I think that was one thing was just like figuring out when to like do basic things like start my day and take lunch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Suddenly it became like, like this, there was this notion of scheduling that needed to be done when I did those things that I didn't really account for when I took in-person jobs in the Bay Area. Yeah, I've had the opposite challenge. I'm on the East Coast and my, <laughs> my customers on the West Coast and sometimes they don't come online. It's pretty typical, they're Bay Area and they, they don't come online yeah. until 1030 their time. And, <laughs> and if I have a question, you know, that's what is that? 130. Yeah. Uh, so it's been, it's been about trying to understand how, how not to get blocked and and uh, they've been they've been very responsive, so I, I really can't complain. But they're it's it's certainly it's certainly it's I find it interesting that you found that it worked better for you to start later. It makes total sense when you say why, but I would have the same initial reaction you did, which is oh we should line up more. But but you're actually saying that no, it was about figuring out figuring out how to how to make it work. Yeah, and I think also so again like prior to this, I had like about a year of industry experience. And before that, I hadn't, like, done any coding really at all. So I'm, like, a relatively junior engineer. So there's a lot around, like, onboarding and, like, just getting used to being, like, completely independent of people that happens when you're a relatively junior engineer. And it was sort of interesting trying to manage that when also, like, for half the day, your entire company disappears. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, I mean, like you've experienced this with your customers, you're saying like getting blocked and everything. It's sort of the same thing for me. I don't have customers, but I have like teammates and stuff who sort of go offline at a certain point in the day. And then after that, it's just sort of like up to me to manage. I think when I started out, it was kind of rough goings on just because I didn't know the code base and didn't really like understand like organizationally the tool set and everything that we're using. Things like Trello or Asana or things that other people use. Like I wasn't necessarily completely used to the workflow. And I think after a couple of months, it started getting better, <laughs> especially um, when you start. I think if you're working with a team that isn't distributed and you yourself are remote from them, it, like some of the things that are kind of rough are like if they're using like a different tool set in the office than you are. So they're like trying to interface with you in one specific way, um, but they're interfacing with each other in a different way in like on site. Mm -hmm. Like fortunately I haven't had that problem because everyone's just been like using the same tools from the outset and like meetings and things also, like if we do a meeting, we no longer like book a room in Philadelphia somewhere. Everyone just like gets on hangouts and uses hangouts. So if like one person has really bad AV, like everyone does. So it maintains a higher quality of standards. <laughs> That's good. Where did that come yeah. from? Because oftentimes that has to come from the remote people, the, the impetus to unify around the technologies that are, in some sense, the, the lowest common denominator. Was that you that instigated that or would that just no, come? That was just from like, they, I think they were anticipating potentially hiring a remote person. And so they're like, we should start doing this in advance of that. So when I arrived, it wasn't even a thing I had to say, <laughs> cool. which was nice. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So now when I asked you um, before, when we did our little pre-show call, I said, oh, should I introduce you as a closure developer? You're like, well, I do closure, but I don't always do closure. So I'm, I'm curious. I didn't follow up on this at the time. What are the technologies that you're, are you primarily doing Scala at work or other stuff? Yeah, so since I've started coding, my main language that I've been working on is Scala. Mm -hmm. And then I've been doing a little bit of like Python stuff, especially for like doing functional tests and everything. That tends to be like Python. Uh, I think there was like some Groovy at one point that I wrote. Like there's obviously like a little bit of Java that gets thrown in occasionally because I do Scala. Uh, and then I think at one point for like a week I wrote some Lua code. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I I don't usually do Scala like inside, or rather, I don't usually do Closure inside of work, or I haven't historically. It's a thing that I would look forward to using, uh, but it's not really a thing that I've like been paid to do yet so far. <laughs> that's cool. I mean, that's, I think that's where a lot of our listeners are at is they're they're using. Um, although I think this is changing. I mean, you look at the statistics. The closure cons last year, we asked yeah. how many people are here for the first time, and the answer was like 60%. And when you walked around and talked to people, it's like, oh, are you doing closure at work? And, you know, I think back to the first closure cons, and it was like, even people <laughs> at relevance aren't doing closure at work a lot of the time. And now that's different, and so I think that's changing. But at the same time, I think there are plenty of people out in our audience who are uh, would, would love to do closure at work, but aren't necessarily uh, doing it, they're doing it on the side. So, I, I, I'll just add, you know, this is always a fun question to ask people. What, uh, what appeals? Like you say you want, you want to do closure. Why? What about it? What about it makes you want to do it? Uh, so big part of why I would like to work in closure is mostly just that, like, so how I got started doing closure was mostly just like, I kept meeting nice people and they kept inviting me to do things with them that involved closure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just started picking up closure mostly because other people were like really enthusiastic about it and encouraged me to do so. And a certain amount of it was just like, that has sort of built up, like, that's how I've learned was, um, like, 
when I started learning Scala, it was mostly like, oh, I find Scala personally very interesting, so I'm going to go and try really hard to find resources. Like two years ago, there weren't quite as many resources for Scala as there are now. Like there weren't beginner-friendly books at all, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now there's at least sort of like Atomic Scala. There's another book that came out recently that's like Learning Scala that is at least like if you have some background in Python or something, you should be able to go through that book and pick it up. But previously, a lot of it was like, focused on Java developers and targeted towards people who knew like three other languages already. So it was kind of like a brutal experience. <laughs> it was character building. Uh, when I started doing Clojure, one of the things I liked about it was that it was like relatively easy to find help and assistance, which I, I know people are like, oh, like the documentation sometimes for Clojure like isn't super great, mostly just because there's like like super great relative to things like Python or JavaScript or something, just by nature of the fact that relatively few people use it. But one of, these, one of the really positive experiences I've had is that the people who do use it are like really, really enthusiastic and really super willing to contribute back and help you out with stuff. If you need help troubleshooting, people are like always around to answer questions all the time, or at least that's been my experience. Uh, my, uh, mine too, and yeah. I'm glad to hear that it's been yours. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that aspect of it. Like, technically speaking, <laughs> uh, one of the things I like about it is obviously, like, it runs on the JVM. Mm -hmm. So that's cool because most of the stuff that I do uh, kind of, like, requires running on the JVM for one reason or another, uh, especially because there's a lot of, like, naturally when you start, or so because I do distributed system stuff, like, most of the companies where if I were to move there, like, I would be needing to probably use something on the JVM like generally speaking. So it sort of comes down to like Java or Scala or Clojure for the most part. And so far I've been doing Scala mostly because I think it's, it sort of had like a slightly lower barrier to entry in terms of like functional programming. Like you didn't have to do it from the outset. And so there were like more Scala jobs around when I first started out. And now that like Clojure jobs are increasing and it's becoming more popular, I think like people are more willing to take it on internally just by nature of the fact that it seems like more people are using it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would be excited to use Clojure mostly because, like, <laughs> I like the amount of support that there is for Clojure relative to something like Scholar or something, or alternatively. Like, the community itself is a really good, is in a really good place, I think, relative to other languages that are, like, accomplishing some of the same technical goals. That's interesting to hear that. I mean, I, I agree, but, you know, like I say, everybody's got their, their own perspective, so uh, it's it's cool to hear that you find that to be true as well. Yeah. You mentioned you do distributed systems, um, which I, I find to be an interesting topic. It's always tough to talk to people about their work. They can't always um, yeah. go into details. <laughs> but what, what's the, you know, what's the new what's the new hotness in the distributed systems world, which I don't follow as well as I should. You've got to I think you've got a better uh, grounding there than I do. Um, what's what's kind of interesting out there in the in the general world, or to the extent that you can talk about things at work? So, I mean, most of the stuff that I have been doing historically related to distributed systems have been related to either like specifically building services around like NoSQL stores, like Cassandra. I was doing for a while, or React. I've been doing for a while. That, or I was doing like distributed data processing stuff. So I was using Storm for a bit. Uh, I was using Spark for a bit. Back when I very first started out, I was using, I was doing a lot of MapReduce stuff when I very first like started out doing coding. I sort of like, I think I, like some of the stuff that I think like the new hotness that people keep talking about in distributed systems is mostly that I've been hearing 
lately, like stuff around like mesos and also containers is just like constantly that seems to be all I ever hear about whenever I go to meetups and stuff and when I talk to people, uh, whether that's just like engineers talking about it. I know there's, for perspective, I know I'm going to like two workshops, strangely, one of them is like building distributed applications on Mesos using Clojure, and then the other one is like advanced level Docker. So those are kind of like, I mean, I don't know if you call them the new hotness because they've been around for like a few years now, at least, if not more than that, most mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. But like they're starting to catch on at least like in enterprise situations. I know like a lot of the stuff that I was doing when I first started out two years ago is still relevant now, but the difference is that it's being used in a lot more different contexts, if that makes sense. Like when I was starting out two years ago, I remember my first meetup that I went to was like an Apache Mesos meetup, which is like a, it's a cluster manager. So... I went there and it was sort of like a niche thing and like no one had really heard about it when I left the meetup. <laughs> and now there's like Mesosphere, which is like an entire company centered around sort of like productizing like Mesos as a service, which is like very much a thing that didn't exist two years ago. So a lot of people I know, even engineers from Hackbrite who were in my session two years ago and weren't at all interested or focused on distributed systems, uh, like they started using those things and they've become like more prevalent than they were even just a couple of years ago which is really exciting for me because <laughs> now I have more people to go to meetups with. So have you worked with um, much with Docker or Mesos? Or... Uh, my current job, we don't use it as much. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was first starting out, I was doing a little bit of Mesos stuff for a short time. So I was a contractor, so I mostly sort of like popped in and did relatively interesting projects that were sort of like prototyping. Like they wanted to do something really interesting but didn't have the bandwidth to prototype it, so I would sort of pop in for a week or two or three and then try to prototype something and leave. Mm -hmm. um, and then like the six month contract I did was mostly like, uh, was involving like writing distributed data processing tooling around sort of like cube stores and things that they already had and needed to sort of like help scale. So that's mostly the stuff that I was working on previously. Like now I don't know that I can even talk about the stuff that I work on right now. <laughs> I have that problem yeah. all the time, <laughs> all the time. It's doubly, doubly, uh, doubly the case at a consulting company typically. Yeah. Well, do you have a side project that you're working? I mean, I imagine Closure Bridge, if you're working on the curriculum there, certainly takes some of your time. Do you have a, do you have a side project that you're excited about? Yeah. Most of the stuff that I've been doing for almost like the past year has been related to getting like Closure Bridge curriculum up and running and then organizational stuff around Closure Bridge writing guides for organizers and then also I'm on the board for Bridge Foundry now. So Bridge Foundry is the nonprofit that oversees Closure Bridge or not oversees, but it sort of like provides a certain amount of like nonprofit structure in terms of like if you want to do fundraising, like you can sort of do that through Bridge Foundry instead of having to manage that directly. So uh, we've been working on sort of setting up more like tooling and guidelines and things for organizers at both uh, Closure Bridge and Rails Bridge around how to do that in a way that's more dependable. That way people who do neither Closure nor Rails but would like to teach their own workshops can then create like an Angular Bridge or a Mobile Bridge or something and then use the same structure, which has been really interesting for me because I'm not quite as familiar with things like fundraising, like how to do that from like a nonprofit perspective which has been really interesting. Um, that has been like a huge amount of my time, I think, over the past year. <laughs> mm -hmm. has been like organizational related stuff. Uh, I was also mentoring at Hackwright for a while. Uh, I'm also a member of 
of a makerspace here in the Bay Area called Double Union, which is, again, like a feminist makerspace for women. Uh, so I was dropping in for a while and then also mentoring some people on how to use OpenStack. So that's another thing that I use at my job at the moment. Like previously when I was working at startups, everyone was using AWS. And then I moved to an enterprise environment and we've been using OpenStack. So sorry, so, what's OpenStack? Oh, OpenStack is, it's for basically like creating your own private cloud. So in the same way that you can sort of like spin up AWS instances, it's like an open source project that allows you to build that sort of framework in your own data centers. Mm, gotcha. So uh, there were a couple of people who were interested in doing open source related stuff with OpenStack. So I spent a few weeks like just sitting around and like mentoring people on that. <laughs> I feel like a lot of my side projects lately have been like less technical and more like teaching other people things, mostly because before I started coding, I wanted to go into teaching and now it's sort of like become my hobby and what I do in my spare time. And I think like after Closure West, I was like, now I actually want to start doing technical things. So now I'm starting to ramp up more on like closure script stuff is what I want to do this year. Mm -hmm. So I like specifically like data visualization stuff in closure, which I know I have like a vacation next week coming up. So I'm like, that'll be what I do. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And also I think going back and uh, learning a lot of like the low level system stuff that I didn't really learn because I didn't go through a traditional bachelor's degree program. So picking up like C which is, <laughs> which seems like a thing like everyone knows, I feel like, <laughs> but like I didn't go through bachelor's programs. So that's actually like a thing that's really important and relevant, especially if you do like distributed systems, like knowing how to optimize certain things in CE is kind of important, <laughs> but it's also like a gap in my knowledge that I sort of like haven't really filled yet. So that's taking up a lot of my time. <laughs> well, I think, well, first of all, you've blown the top of my head off with the number of things that you're, you're working on. I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, you mentioned the makerspace. So first of all, I don't think you're going to have any trouble with C. Anybody that can do the things that you have done is not going to have any trouble with C. It's a, I, I find it to be that's a nice... That's reassuring. Thank you. I, well, it's, I mean it. And it, I think it's a nice little language. And I wonder whether you might come at it through... Um, Arduino programming, since they have a, a C-like language that, that you use for Arduino that I've, uh, that I've enjoyed playing around with. And you mentioned that you're uh, working in a makerspace, and there's all sorts of fun intersections of the physical world and the software world that, that meet through an Arduino. So that's, a, that's one possibility for you. Yeah. I know I bought an Arduino when I was at Maker Faire a couple of weeks ago, and I still just like haven't figured out what it is that I want to do with it, <laughs> I think is part of the problem with like hardware hacking. Yeah, yeah I have the same problem. It's I like buy a bunch of things and like I'm totally gonna build something cool and then I just like cannot think of a cool thing to build with it and then I just end up like making lights blink. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with blinking lights. Blinking lights are uh, are are an end in and of themselves, in my opinion. That there's nothing wrong with that at all. Boy, that's really cool stuff. I, I I'm actually really curious to hear more about the the makerspace. That's something that I've so I I do woodworking and I have a shop in my house, but uh, you know. Kind of as a family guy myself, it's a little harder for me to say I want to get out and um, and go, you know, participate in something like a makerspace. Although the resources would be great, and I think there's a pretty good one around here. But I'd be curious to hear your experience, particularly one, with the one you talked about, because um, you know I've got two daughters, and uh, you know, just hearing more about programs that make it appealing um, for them to do the types of things that I'm interested in, you know, that's kind of a neat thing for me. So. Uh, can you tell me more about the maker maker space? Is that the right term for that you've been? Uh, yeah, I've been calling it a maker space mostly because um, I think 
like in the Bay Area specifically, there tend to be a lot of places that are very similar, but call themselves hacker spaces. Mm. And like for me personally, anyway, like I tend to find that a little bit of a put off. <laughs> like I don't really identify as a hacker per se. Like I make things, but I don't necessarily think that I hack things as much. Like I build stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, can I and, ask you a question? Yeah. I'm just really fascinated by this. What does the what does the word hack mean to you? Because it has sort of an original yeah. meaning that dates back even before me, but it has a different meaning now. What What's the meaning that you take from it that, that you find off-putting? Uh, so I think like outside of the tech industry in general, when people think of hacking, they think of like network security type mm-hmm. of, yeah. Like what I have identified it with, at least in the Bay Area, tends to be things like hackathons and like competitions and competing. Gotcha. And that's not quite as much my scene. Like I understand why other people would find it appealing. It's more just like, I guess, again, because I came from teaching, I tend to be less of a person who is, like, focused on winning things and more of a person who's focused on, like, sitting down and having interesting conversations with people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I I tend to call it a makerspace. And and Double Union also calls itself a makerspace slash hackerspace, like, depending on the context. Uh, Meaning they'll either say makerspace a lot of the time or they'll say, like, makerspace slash hackerspace. And yeah, I mean, that's how I identify with the word hack, if that gotcha. makes sense. No, that helps. I Sorry yeah. to take you off on a tangent, but I was really, yeah. uh, I got curious there. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things I like about Double Union is that there are a lot of people there who, uh, to clarify, this is like a makerspace that exists in the mission in San Francisco, like in the middle of the tech industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there are a lot of members who like do work in the tech industry, but there are also a lot of people who came from things like journalism who like come from teaching, who are artists. So they do a lot of like zine making and a lot of textile projects. There's like a 3D printing bot I think they have in there. And there's a giant library on like feminist books and also coding books and also just like making things in general books. Uh, You can like go there and learn how to solder. Like you can go there and like find someone to help you learn whatever it is you want to learn for the most part, Hmm. which is really refreshing. And they also... Uh, they also tend to host like events that are like really relevant, especially because they do a lot of stuff in like around Closure Bridge and Bridge Foundry. So like recently, I remember they held like uh, a talk specifically on fundraising for nonprofits, for example, which isn't necessarily something you'd associate with like a hackerspace, but is something that you might associate with a makerspace if you're interested in sort of like building things and sharing that, especially with like diverse members of the community. So mm-hmm. it's, it's been a really positive experience for me being a member there, uh, especially because again, like, so there's definitely like a huge community of people that I know just having been through hack, right. Of like women engineers. And I think one of the things I really like about double union is that when I go there, there's, there are like, women engineers, but there are also women who do really interesting things and build a lot of really interesting things, but they're not like in the tech industry, mm-hmm. which is kind of hard to find in the Bay Area, to be honest with you. <laughs> to me, well, you've certainly got a lot going on. Uh, I find it funny that you say that because I always feel like I'm not doing enough. <laughs> you know, I think that's a common characteristic of um, high achievers. I was going to use the word overachiever, but what a terrible word when you think about it, right? Like there should be some yeah. sort of limit um, or even a goal, right? Like, but I, I certainly, I mean, you know, look at the list you just said, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, and I'm doing a makerspace and I'm going to teach myself closure script, which by the way, I think you picked a good year. <laughs> There's a lot of cool stuff going on in closure script right it now. Like a good year. I, I recently, so because we use light table for closure bridge, 
I did at one point spend a week just like sitting down and learning how to write light table plugins. So I wrote like a light table plugin for Scala, like a language plugin, which was sort of like interesting because I'd never done like closure scripts. So I'd done closure, but I had never done closure scripts. So I didn't like have, and I'm also like not a front end engineer. So it was sort of like simultaneously trying to teach myself JavaScript and also closure scripts <laughs> while also trying to sort of like, like to write a language plugin for Lighttable, you have to like have an eval for the language that you're doing. So it was also simultaneously like going back and looking at like Scala mailing list posts from like 2011 or like 2008 or something. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> it was, it was an interesting experience. So now like fortunately when I finished that, people were like, Oh, they're using like an older version of closure script. And I was like, Oh good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So the error messages will get better then. <laughs> yes, yes, they definitely yeah. are. That's a lot. I feel like uh, we could pick on any one of those things, but I also think we're kind of closing in on our time here. But um, uh, I want to make sure we loop back, and, and, and or maybe not loop back, but uh, take a chance to um, cover anything else you wanted us to talk about today. If there's things you're working on or things you're interested in or stuff you wanted to, to share with the audience, make sure we give you some time to do that before we close down. Uh, not in particular, although if anyone's interested in like running or hosting or organizing a closure bridge, you should definitely like get in touch with me or any of the other sort of closure bridge, closure bridge adjacent people and we can set you up as a mentor and we can start getting more events going. <laughs> that is absolutely just that is exactly the question I was going to ask you come to think of it, which is how can people help? And you mentioned one way, which is that they can uh, sign up to uh, make an event happen. But um, it sounds like there's still a lot of curriculum work going on. I mean, are, is that a good way for people to help? Can people help yeah, financially? Definitely. We could definitely use help on the curriculum and stuff. I think we're still getting like the fundraising stuff up and going for Closure Bridge. So right now, events will sort of like seek sponsorships on an event by event basis. And the organizers in each city will sort of handle that themselves. Hopefully, like, Later this year, we'll have like an actual concerted fundraising effort for the organization as a whole. It's like definitely a thing that we want to get going. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, if you go to the GitHub account, which I guess we can like link to mm -hmm. in the show notes or something, uh, some of the things that we're working on specifically that could use some help are like definitely like the main curriculum. Also, if you have any experience like organizing and stuff, there's an organizer's repository on GitHub that is also like probably in need of updating. Uh, in particular, so Yoko, which you know Yoko Harada. Sure, yeah. She's my coworker, <laughs> yeah. yep. So she's working on like improving the Quill app and like we could use more hands on that as well. So specifically in relation to the curriculum. Great. Uh, and I think my side project is going to be so I was uh, sort of co hosting a workshop at Coja West this year with Alex and so Part of that is that y'all open source the materials for that. So I'll probably be taking that and turning that into a prototype for an intermediate curriculum, which should be good. Excellent. Yeah. Well, it certainly sounds like there's plenty of ways for people to help out if they, uh, yes. if they want to. So they should go and do that. Well, excellent. Well, you know, it's been really great having you on. But before we let you go here, gotta got to ask you to uh, to give us a piece of advice. We always ask our guests to share some advice, whether it's advice they've been given or they've received or that they just like. So uh, what would you, what kind of, what, what advice do you have for us? Uh, you are only as good as the company you keep. You are only as good as the company you keep. Well, that is awesome because um, I invite super interesting people on this show and I get to, to, to hear their stories and you were certainly no exception. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, just 
You know, your name came up um, several times uh, when we would sit around and we talk about who we should have on, and people like, oh, you should have Catherine Fellows on. Yeah, yeah, we should definitely do that. So I'm glad we finally made it happen because the you know we weren't wrong. You were a, you were a great guest, and it was it was great to have you today. Thank you. Cool, and we will have to have you back on because, uh, as is the case with so many of our guests, you seem to be working on ten thousand things at once. Any one of which would be fun to talk about for you know roughly an hour. So uh, I hope you'll uh, come back. And by the way, I'll be a strange loop too. You mentioned you will be, so I'll be uh, looking forward to, to saying hi to you there. Yes, and people should definitely come up to me and say hello if you are also at Strange Loop. I will be the one with pink hair. There you go. I will not be, <laughs> so I don't have any hair, so yeah, that's good. You can you can, you can can pick her out that way, and I would definitely uh, encourage you to say hi. As you can tell, Catherine is a very friendly person. But it is time for us to let her go, so I will uh, thank you so much for coming on the show one more time, and uh, to thank our listeners as well. This has been the Cognicast. have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Catherine Fellows on Twitter with the unbelievably terse handle of at KF. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento, audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.